My name is John. I'm the associate pastor here at the Aldergrove campus. Has anyone seen that video before? Has anyone seen themselves in the video? It's a little stereotypical about men and women. I think like most things, the truth is somewhere in the middle. But how many people here, men or women, you see yourself like the guy in the video? You hear of a problem, you know how to fix it. How many people are fixers? You're like, yes. Problems, situations, you got this sorted. You're walking through the grocery store, a child is... Someone's pointing at me. <laughs> it's okay, all right. Feel free to give feedback. Um, my name is John. And I'm the associate pastor here at Alder Grove. And we've got fixers in the room. You're walking through the grocery store. There's a child throwing a tantrum. Someone's having trouble finding a job. Someone has recently received some bad news about health, and all of them, you know exactly what they need to do. You just got to pull the nail out. You're a fixer. Maybe when you're watching the news, sports, economics, policy, all they got to do is fire that guy. They just got to change that policy. You know how to make problems go away. Maybe not all of us, maybe not all of the time, but I would suspect that most of us, some of the time, like to fix things. And it's not bad if you know how to help a parent with a child throwing a tantrum, if you know how to help someone get a job, if you actually do know how to help with a health problem, 100% go for it. But the trouble is, is that when we look for solutions, sometimes we're right, but sometimes the solutions don't work. And so if we don't get a solution, what's the next best thing to a solution? An explanation. If we can't fix the problem, at least we want to know why we can't fix the problem. We want to know what's going on. Let me give an example. Uh, some of you know over the past year, I have been dealing with the effects of long COVID. Uh, and for me, for a time there, some of my COVID symptoms were actually showing up as stroke symptoms. So the doctors weren't sure if I had COVID or if I had had a stroke. So I was going through the stroke clinic and the COVID clinic. Wasn't a stroke, just turns out that that's how COVID looks sometimes. But I've been having eye issues over the last two weeks. And so my eye issues can also be stroke symptoms. And so I started to get a little bit nervous. So I went to the doctor. I'm like, listen, this is what's going on. Doctor referred me to the eye doctor. Went to the eye doctor. I'm like, this is what's going on. Doctor asked me some questions, did a bunch of stuff. And then at the end, the doctor said, John, you're getting old. You need new glasses. <laughs> so glasses fix, hopefully, this eye problem, and that's great news. You can't fix getting older. And so even though I don't have a solution, it's great to have an explanation. Nothing's wrong. I'm just getting old, medically speaking, apparently. <laughs> and this is good. Like, we should approach life this way. We should look for solutions to problems, and if we can't find solutions, we should look for explanations. It makes sense to think that through. But what do we do when there's a problem, we have no solution, and we have no explanation? What do we do then? What do we do when there's a problem and we have no solution and no explanation? Well, if you're like me, you guess. So for example, let's say you're texting with a friend. You text, they text, you text, they text, back and forth, back and forth. And all of a sudden, you send a text, and they stop. 
You can see that they read it. They saw your text, but there's no reply. What does your brain do? You have no idea what happened. But your brain's like, no problem, we'll fill in then. So they got busy. Their phone died. Someone showed up at their house. They had to fold laundry. They got tired and went to sleep. They had to do homework. I offended them. They're mad at me. We're not friends anymore. They fell and hit their head. They're probably on the floor. I think they're dying. Oh, if only things had been different. And see, just because we don't know the answer, our brain's like, guys, don't worry, I got this. We're gonna fill in an explanation. No solution, no explanation, no problem. So you walk by the family with the child throwing a tantrum in the grocery store. The parent doesn't know how to set boundaries. Someone's got health issues. Mm, they eat too much junk food. Someone's having trouble finding a job. Probably sin in their life. <laughs> this, is, this is probably God punishing them. And maybe, maybe we're right. Maybe the parent doesn't know how to set boundaries. Maybe it's too much junk food. And maybe there is a secret sin. And the Bible does talk about this. In Psalm 112, it says, Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in his commands. Their children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in their house, and their righteousness endures forever. So here's the word of the Lord. Righteousness means blessing. And at the end of Psalm 112, it says, The wicked will see and be vexed. They will gnash their teeth and waste away. The longings of the wicked will come to nothing. And so if you're good, if you're righteous, God blesses you. If you're bad, if there's a sin, if there's something going on in your life, well, there's punishment. So the good are blessed and the wicked are punished. And we see something similar in Jesus' ministry. Jesus is walking along and he, he sees this lame man and he heals them and then they go about their day and, and Jesus ends up bumping into him again. And in John chapter 5, it says, Jesus later found the man who had been healed at the temple. And he said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. So see, sometimes sin is the cause of suffering. It's just a fact of life that choices in our, that we make have consequences, and bad choices have bad consequences. So sin causes suffering. So think about your life. Think about the lives of your loved ones. Think about the news. How many challenges, how many problems, how much suffering do you see? And how many of those do you have a solution for? You know what they need to do. Maybe some, but solutions aren't always clear. If we don't have a solution, how many of these do we have an explanation for? We can't fix it, but we know why things are going wrong. You know, in your friend's life, your family's life, or, or in that situation, maybe some, but again, the reason isn't always clear. And how many of those situations, if there's no solution and no explanation, do we fill in that gap? He's an idiot. She's just greedy. I bet you they did something to deserve this. See, the first two can be our responsibility to do well. If there's a problem, find a solution. If there's no solution, find an explanation. 
But then if we don't have that, our brain starts to fill in the gap. And the problem comes is we don't always know when we know and just when we think we know. We confuse the truth for our opinion. See, if we're looking for reasons, it's a very small but very significant jump if we say that sin causes suffering. And therefore, those who suffer must have sinned. This is the idea of Christian karma. You get what you deserve, and you deserve what you get. So therefore, those who suffer more, they must have sinned more because God blesses the righteous and the wicked suffers, right? And we often see this anytime there's a tragedy. That, that something terrible happens in the news and pretty soon, often, it's, it's a religious leader or a church will come forward and say that this earthquake or this tragedy, this happened because these people were doing this, that, or the other. And maybe, maybe they're right, but at least some of the time, I think they're confusing their opinion for the truth. So we bump into this idea in different ways in our lives. And it was no different in Jesus' day. We're continuing our series in Luke. If you want to look up Luke chapter 13 in your pew Bible, or if you have a Bible or in your app, it's page 491 in the pew Bible. But we're continuing our series in Luke. And Jesus has been talking to this crowd for a really long time now. And in this crowd, you've got village people, not like village people, but people from the village. And you've got Pharisees, and you've got his disciples, and they're all kind of in the mix, and different things keep popping up in the conversation. And here, there's a bit of breaking news, where someone comes up and tells Jesus about some things that have happened recently. And Luke 13, 1 says, Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now, we're not 100% sure what this means or what event it's referring to, but it seems that Pilate killed a group of Galileans who were likely in the temple and possibly even as they were worshiping. Now, let's put ourselves in the shoes of the crowd. Can you solve something like this? You can't solve it. They're already dead. And so if we don't have a solution, we look for an explanation. Why would something like this happen to these people? Well, clearly, they did something bad to deserve this, right? Like, they must have earned this. This is a terrible, disgusting thing to have had happen to them. They must have earned this. And in the court of public opinion at, time, at the time, these people were 100% guilty. We maybe don't know what they were guilty of, but they were 100% guilty of something, and God was punishing them. But Jesus, he addresses this. See, I think, though, in a sense, this idea is actually kind of nice. Wicked are punished and the righteous suffer. It's straightforward. It's even comforting because it makes the world clean and easy to understand. See, if the righteous live and the wicked suffer, then all suffering not only has a cause, it has blame. It's someone's fault. And if they would just fix it, it would go away. And not just that, not only do the, the wicked suffer, but if I'm not suffering in that way, then I must be innocent of whatever you're guilty of. And so if your life is worse than mine, it means I am more righteous. And so this is actually kind of a comforting idea if you're not the one who's suffering, which is why you often hear this idea from the people who aren't suffering. 
And so Jesus, he responds to this unspoken idea in Luke 13, 2. And Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? The crowd would have been thinking, yeah. But Jesus says, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? Well, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. And this is the word of the Lord. So let's just sit with that for a moment. Because what Jesus says here is actually quite remarkable. That those who suffer aren't necessarily the most wicked. And those who survive aren't necessarily the most righteous. This is groundbreaking. This is earth-shaking. That This means that in, in our world that suffering and even death isn't always the result of being extra wicked. And life and blessing isn't always the result of being extra righteous. It actually makes it unfair. This is one of our biggest questions. Why do bad things happen when it seems that people don't deserve it? And Jesus doesn't give an answer. He says to the crowd, do you think that this happened, that this, this tower falling on these people, and again, we don't know exactly what that was, but it, it seems a construction accident of some sort led to 18 people dying. So do you think that this was because they were sinners? I tell you no. If he had said one more sentence, if he had said, it's actually because he could have solved perhaps the problem of suffering for all time. But all he does, all Jesus does, it says it's not because of sin. So he doesn't give us a solution. He doesn't give us an explanation. Jesus gives us a response. He says when we see suffering, if there's no reason and there's no explanation, we have no idea why it happened. Here's what we do. We repent. We acknowledge the sin in our lives and we get rid of it. So think of the news. Think of loved ones. Think of that imaginary child in the grocery store. All the suffering and the problems that you have no solution and no explanation for. What do we do with it? We repent. It's not a solution, it's not an explanation, but it is our response. Depending on what Bible translation you have, um, Bibles always have headings on them. And so in mine, chapter 13, the heading here is repent or perish. And that's not original in the Greek, we add that in, in English just so you can skim quicker, but that's kind of like classic stereotypical church language, hey? Repent or perish. We don't like words like repent and sin and perish. But what if we used instead words like illness, symptoms, diagnosis, prognosis? What if we understood that Jesus is saying that there's an illness in our soul 
that sin is the cause, suffering a symptom, perishing the prognosis, repenting the treatment, and Christ the cure. See, I think that helps us understand the reality of what Jesus is saying here, is that there is something in our soul that will cause our eventual destruction unless we deal with it. John 3.16 is a well-loved verse. It says that God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not, what's the next word there? Perish. What does Jesus say here? Unless you repent, you too will perish. It's the same word. So he's calling us to turn from sin and turn to Jesus. That, that when we turn from the way of the world and we start living the life of the kingdom, we, see, can, we can see a different outcome in the story. But this is an ongoing process. This is probably the closest that Jesus and dinosaurs have ever been in a sermon for me. Last year, there was an earthquake in Alaska. And uh, there's these paleontologists that every year they would go to Alaska and they were looking for these dinosaur bones and dinosaur footprints. But this huge earthquake last year all of a sudden revealed a ton of fossils that they had never before found. And they were super excited by this, that, that all of the moving and all of the shaking of the earthquake all of a sudden revealed these fossils that had always been there, but now you could see them. And suffering, I think, in our lives can have a similar impact. That when our lives are shaken and moved around, when it feels like we've gone through an earthquake, all of a sudden there can be something that's been there for so long, but we've never seen. And so when we encounter suffering, Jesus says, repent. Think about the pandemic for a moment. Our individual and collective lives were completely upended. And what did that pull out of us? It wasn't always pretty. So Jesus says when you encounter suffering, when you encounter tragedy, see if there is sin running untreated in your life. And if so, it's time to take the medicine. It's time for me to repent. See, it's not a solution. It's not an explanation, but it is our response. So Jesus says, as you consider those who've suffered in this way, remember that your time is short. How many people were here on the Ash Wednesday service? It was a wonderful service. And on Ash Wednesday, and we're in the season of Lent, Ash Wednesday is the day where we remember the Latin phrase is memento mori, remember you are mortal. Remember God is God and you are not. And this is in, in, in essence what Jesus is saying here is remember you have an end. It would have been nice for Jesus to give an answer for him to tell us why suffering happens. But I think for me, personally, just as, this is just John, I think it's actually better for me that I don't always know why people suffer. I've been thinking about this for a long time. So here is why I think I, John, am better off not knowing the cause of suffering, and I'd love to hear your thoughts after the sermon. Number one, if I always knew the reason for suffering, I would be tempted to excuse myself from helping those who deserve it. When it comes to medical care, when it comes to donating money, when it comes to giving of my time, I would prefer to help those who suffer and don't deserve it. Medical emergency triage, find out the ones who deserve it and those who don't. Help the ones who don't deserve the suffering and leave the ones who do. They deserve it. I'm not saying it's good, I'm just saying I could see myself getting there. 
Secondly, I think if I always knew why suffering happened, I would have no patience for those who don't just fix it. Here's your problem, here's the solution, take the nail out and stop wasting our time. Just deal with it. And thirdly, I would get really entitled around all the good things in my life because if my life has helped me not have suffering but I also have blessing, it means I've earned it. And so instead of being grateful, I become entitled. I deserve these things. So I think if I knew why suffering happened, and this is just me, I would become uncompassionate, ungrateful, and impatient. But I don't know why people suffer. And so over the past, probably probably the past year, I've really been thinking about this. And it's ironic to say first, but this idea that I don't know why people suffer has made me more humble. If bad things happen to people who are not particularly evil, it means they could happen to me. I'm not immune. It makes me more grateful. Because perhaps if bad things come that I don't deserve, then perhaps I haven't earned the good things either. And it fills me with gratefulness. It fills me with compassion. The Greek word for suffering is paschal, where we get the English word passion. Compassion literally means calm together, passion, suffering. Compassion literally means to suffer together. And so if I encounter someone who is suffering and I don't know why, well, I find my heart moved to suffer with them. And so it it has made me more compassionate. And finally, I realize my overwhelming vulnerability as a human. I cannot protect myself or my loved ones from suffering and nor can I bring blessing into our lives. And I find myself overwhelmed by my need for a grace that I cannot earn. And so because I don't know why suffering happens, it develops in me humility, gratefulness, compassion, and a dependence on God. And so for me, I think that's why it's good. I'd love to hear your thoughts. But it's less than satisfying, isn't it? We don't really want to live in a world where children who aren't overly wicked are dying of starvation, where people who aren't terribly guilty have their nation invaded and their homes destroyed. We don't really understand why loved ones work hard and struggle financially. And we don't really understand where it seems that the good die young. There's a wrongness to it. But I think the wrongness points us to something right. Does anyone know what Mercaptan is? And contrary to what Emily said when I preached this sermon through to her, it's not a mermaid who's a captain. <laughs> I might not even be saying that right, but Mercaptan, we've all, we don't know what it is, but all of us have smelled it. It's the smell in propane and natural gas. See, propane and natural gas are odorless and colorless, and so they add in a smell so you recognize the danger. So when you smell propane, you actually don't smell the propane, you smell the mercaptan. There's an advertising campaign that says it smells bad for a good reason. Reminds you of the danger. And suffering has the same result in our lives. See, suffering is the result of brokenness in a broken world. And when we encounter suffering, it reminds us there is something wrong with this world. Suffering, particularly unjust suffering, it makes this world great on our souls. 
It makes understanding why this stuff happens, it makes it a burden on our hearts. But I think what it does is it reminds us that our citizenship is elsewhere. See, when we see the suffering, Jesus says, it should cause us to lean into the ways of the kingdom, to turn from the way of the world and turn towards the way of the kingdom. That suffering, it smells bad for a good reason. There's a C.S. Lewis Lewis quote. It says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. How many of us have ever been homesick for heaven? How many of us have ever been there? See, there is a weight in this world. And the more stories you hear, the more situations you encounter, the more times you just, you find this suffering and there's no solution and there's no explanation, it just adds another layer of heaviness. But I think what that should do is it should point us to a place where that isn't the case. And I think at some level, all of us yearn for that. And even though we've never been there, we're homesick. We're homesick for heaven. That suffering points us out of this world and into heaven. That a death out of season should remind us of life eternal. That living in poverty should remind us that we are destined for a city where the streets are paved with gold. That living with poor health is like living in a leaking tent. The longer you do it, the more you want to go to your forever home. And not that we don't respond practically. I'm not saying that we just check out of this life and just wait for heaven. But what I'm saying is that as we encounter these situations, it should turn our hearts towards our forever home. That when we encounter the brokenness of the world, our hearts are drawn towards the ways of heaven. Suffering can remind us of this. And I think Jesus is saying it should. In Luke 13, 6, Jesus, he tells a parable, a story. And he says, a man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it, and if it bears fruit next year, fine. And if not, then cut it down. And it's a simple story, and the point of Jesus' story is that time's running out for the listeners. The fig tree in the story, just like the people, has had plenty of time to bear fruit. So Jesus said, there's just a little more time until there's no more time. It'd be like a bookstore, selling a book and having no one buy it for three years. Or a menu at a restaurant that nobody orders for three years. Or an airline operating a flight that nobody books for three years. It doesn't make sense to sell a book or offer a dish or run a flight if nobody's responding. And in the same way with the fig tree and the people, after a point of no point, time runs out. So Jesus is giving a warning. He said, there's not a lot of time left to produce the fruit of the kingdom. And all that you see in the world, with the Galileans and the towers falling and and the people dying and the suffering, all of this should remind us, you and me, of the urgency of our own situation. It's a little grim, but Jesus says their end 
should remind you and me of our end. There's not much time left. I'm not sure if you noticed it this morning, but if you live in the area or drive in the area, has anyone picked up a particular seasonal aroma? I don't know. I, I've, there's been a few days this week that I noticed spring fertilizing is happening. And I'm not a farmer, but I would suspect that many fields around here have had some amount of manure put on them. And I've never loved the smell of manure. At best, I'm indifferent. But I do love the summer days where I'm, I'm coming to the church and I can smell the ripe strawberries in the field. See, the smell of manure and the smell of ripe strawberries couldn't be more different. But they are intimately connected. See, it's the smell of the manure that reminds us that fruit is on the way. And I think Jesus' main point to this parable is that there isn't much time left. But I love the idea that the tree gets one more chance that the tree gets a little bit more time. And the gardener, he digs around the roots and he lays the fertilizer. And there's one last season to let the fertilizer do the work. I think sometimes it takes us having our lives completely dug up and maybe a really poopy year for us to see fruit. Think about the worst times in your life. Think about the times that God has done the most in you. And for me, those are almost always the same. The worst months, the most difficult seasons, those are the times where I see God working in me. That's where I see my character shaped to become like his. That's where I see my own selfishness and my own desire for control. I see it exposed, and I see God working on it. I see my priorities shift in a good way. So it's the worst times, the times where I feel like my life has just been completely dug up, that are also the times that bring the most fruit. And maybe it's the same for you. And James gives us some encouragement in this. In James chapter 1, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So trials and testing produces maturity, James says. Suffering isn't always a punishment to avoid. Sometimes it's a process to endure. Because once the fertilizer has done the work, you see a harvest. It's the smell of the manure that tells you that fruit is on the way. This morning is communion, and in a moment the band's going to come up and they're going to play a couple of songs. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite you to come. We're going to have two sets of people serving here and here, and then in the balcony up in the back. And I'm going to invite you to come and to take the bread and to take the cup. And then you can bring it back to your seat and you can take it individually. We're not going to do it all together. And so you, once you have received the cup and the bread, you can take it whenever you like. And then at the end of the service, if I can just ask that you bring the cup and the little paper cup with you and just drop it in the garbage can on the way out. That would help us not have to gather them up. But 
In a moment, the band will come. I'll invite you to come, and we're going to take communion. And I have a few questions for us to consider. Number one, how is the health of our souls? Is there sin left untreated? And if you've never responded to Jesus, I would invite you to do so today. I know you have a deep need for him, and the reason I know that is because I know I have a deep need for him. That each of us have a soul sickness called sin in which we willingly choose things that will eventually destroy us. The passage heading here was repent or perish, but perhaps we say there's a cure. The good news is is that Jesus came and lived an innocent life and died a death on the cross and three days later rose again. And in his death, he paid the penalty for our choices and offers forgiveness. So today can be a day where your journey with Jesus begins. To acknowledge your sin sickness, to ask forgiveness, and begin to live an apprenticed life. Becoming more like Jesus in what you say and do. And if that's you, if you've never responded to Jesus before and you think, yeah, I want to walk with him. I would love to talk to you. And maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a while, but some habits or attitudes long covered have been revealed. And they need to be dealt with. I would encourage you to bring it to Jesus. There's mercy and grace for us all at the cross. And maybe you've been living a fruitless life. Things aren't too bad, but you look back and and they're not too good either. There's not a lot that you could point at for fruit. So I'd encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit what it might look like for you to begin to look a lot more like Jesus in your private and public life. And fourth, maybe you've had a tough season lately. And it's important to acknowledge that sometimes suffering is the result of sin or poor choices. It's not always, but sometimes it is. And if you've not yet done so, it'd be good to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you through the Bible, through a friend, or even just his voice, if there's anything in your life that he's wanting to deal with. There might not be a solution, but perhaps there is an explanation. But if the answer is no, then we move on. So allow the Holy Spirit to to speak, and if the answer is no, we move on. And finally, maybe God is calling you to demonstrate compassion, to offer fewer solutions, to look for less explanations, and instead just to suffer with. So what would it look like in your life or for us as a church to deal less in solutions and explanations and more in loving compassion? I also want to invite you for prayer. So once a month, we want to offer something called elder prayer. It's where the elders of the church are are open for prayer. And you can always request to pray with an elder, but this is a Sunday where we particularly want to make it available. And elders are spiritual leaders in the church. So Pastor Kevin, uh, myself, and my wife Emily, we're going to be available for prayer. We're going to have um, some available in here and in the prayer room. And I would particularly like to invite those who have had bad weeks that have turned into bad months that have turned into bad years to pray. It's been a rough road and it just doesn't seem to let up and you have no solutions and you have no explanations and yet it seems to continue and I might not have solutions and I might not have explanations but I would love to talk to Jesus with you. I remember having a conversation who had struggled, a conversation with someone who struggled with chronic pain for years And she said to me, I don't think I'll ever forget her words, she said, I would never have chosen this. 
but I wouldn't be who I am without it. And communion reminds us that grace has been given on the cross and that there's a hope of a kingdom coming. And over this past year, I've learned to lean so heavily on that truth. And so maybe for you today, communion is just a reminder that grace has been given and the kingdom is coming. And if so, we would love to pray with you or with anyone. So I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to pray and then I'll invite you to come for communion. Those are serving communion, I'm going to invite you to come up as well. So Jesus, Father and Holy Spirit, we ask that you would bring the truth of your death and resurrection to us again. God, that you, we would just hear you, that you would meet us, that you would remind us that grace has been given and that the kingdom is coming. So where there is sin, we ask, ask you would reveal it and where it's confessed, we trust that there's forgiveness. So we ask you would meet us this morning. We pray this in your name, amen. So I'm gonna invite you to come and to receive communion up here at the front and in the balcony as well.